0: This is Usable, a Quartz creative podcast that profiles the creators that are applying user-first design to reinvent how we experience the world. On this episode, Ricardo Bilton talks to Impossible Foods senior flavor scientist Laura Kleiman about how science and user-first design help her create a plant-based burger suited for vegans but designed for meat-eaters. For people who are not familiar with Impossible Foods, give us an overview of the company and its history.
1: So Impossible Foods is a company that makes plant-based alternatives to animal food products. We were founded in 2011 by Pat Brown, and our mission is to make a global food system that is much more sustainable than it is now and replace animal agriculture by the year 2035.
0: That is something that did jump out at me about Impossible Foods is there is a mission component to this. It, it is very much in the vein of a lot of, you know, relatively new companies that, you know, we're not in this just to make money. We're in this to actually create a cultural change. And that seems to be a major pull for people who work there, I assume.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would say it's a really special place in that way where the majority of the people are extremely motivated by the mission. And I think that makes us super excited to come to work every day and be contributing to something that's so positively impactful on the world.
0: Where does the impossible come from? Why is it called Impossible Foods?
1: I wasn't around when we named the company, but my interpretation is that we are solving a problem that I think people have widely ignored for a long period of time because it was seen as too challenging. Meat is something that is so ingrained in our culture, something that is like a very emotional attachment that people have, and so... Understanding that the way that we produce meat products right now is not sustainable for the environment has been understood, but how we can then change that, I think people have sort of stepped away from coming up with a solution, but not us. We think that it is definitely a solvable problem using science and technology to sort of do the impossible right, and to make a plant-based product that is just as delicious as the animal version, but much more sustainable.
0: I want to get into the specific nature of, of the science part of this, which is fascinating to me, but I'm very interested in, in your backstory. So you are a food scientist. I've always been obsessed with the idea of how food is engineered, how tastes are engineered. What is the job? What does it mean to be a food scientist?
1: Interestingly, my background is not in food science at all. So I am an organic chemist by training. So I understand sort of how small molecules are made or interact. And I have always been an avid home chef and have loved food, but never sort of applied science to food until I got to Impossible Foods. I co- sort of like got into the field in a much more indirect way than I think the normal food scientist does. So I'm sure I have a different perspective then on what it means to be a food scientist and specifically what it means to be a food scientist at Impossible Possible foods. I think one like really differentiating aspect of the job here is that we're not sort of creating synthetic flavors or you know molecules that that when you taste them make you think of meat. We actually are understanding how flavor is created in animal products upon cooking and then taking advantage of how we can get those exact same flavor reactions to occur in our product using our magic ingredient, which is heme. So we're creating flavor upon cooking instead of putting in flavors from the beginning of the process and into the product.
0: Would you say that your job is closer to being a chemist or a chef? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I think it's like the perfect marriage of the two. I get to do a really like wide range of things at work. And so sometimes I'm in the kitchen and I'm cooking with the product a lot and I want to see how it works in different culinary applications. And that's much more of the chefy side. And then other times I'm understanding, you know, what are all of the aroma compounds that are generated when you cook our product and which ones of those are sensory active and where did they come from based on their chemical structure? So it's really both.
0: Was there a specific moment you knew you wanted to get into this? Obviously, your background is not you know, you said it's, it's different from how people typically do it. What struck your interest in working at Impossible Foods?
1: For my entire life, I've been extremely motivated by sustainability and ways that we can help take care of our environment. So I knew for a long time that I wanted to use my chemistry background in a way that would allow me to solve problems around sustainability. And I originally had thought about that in terms of the biofuel industry and the energy sector. And I actually did previously work at a biofuel startup. And I never had really thought about like the agricultural industry, although, you know, that's always been a big player and negatively impacting our environment, specifically animal farming. But it wasn't until I actually heard a story on NPR about Impossible Foods and As soon as I read more about it, I realized, you know, it was the three things that I love most in the world, which is sustainability, chemistry and the culinary arts. And I got to do all three of them by working here. So it was pretty clear immediately after I learned what they were working on that I wanted to be a part of it.
0: What does your typical day look like?
1: So I would say we don't really have a typical day because we're what we're working on is sort of always changing, but a lot of what I do is centered around product innovation and understanding how we can develop new products or improve on the ones that we already have. So that involves working in our test kitchen and seeing you know, what different new versions we can come up with, understanding how to design experiments and analyzing that data, working with our sensory team to do a lot of tastings as well as consumer testing. So there's a wide variety of stuff that we get to work on.
0: The latest version is the Impossible Burger 2.0, correct? That's right. Which is very interesting because that's obviously borrowing from, you know, how technology companies articulate what change, you know, when when version 1.0, 2.0, right? 3.0. What's changed with the new version and why adopt that sort of technology way of naming products?
1: Yeah. So a lot has changed um, with the newest version of the Impossible Burger. The Impossible 2.0 delivers everything that matters to really hardcore meat lovers from taste to nutrition to versatility. We really improved the beefiness and the juiciness of the product because we knew that that was something that was really important to consumers, something that they identify as being like one of the most important things when they eat a beef burger. We also lowered the saturated fat as well as the sodium. So we now have a third uh, less sodium than we did in the first version. We have 45% less saturated fat than a burger from a cow. And the versatility is much more improved from the previous first version. So you can now cook it on an open flame grill. You can fry it. You can use it in a sauce or or in, you know, meatballs or lasagna. Um, So basically anything that you can imagine doing with ground beef you can now do with Impossible Burger 2.0. The reason why I think we wanted to... Use that sort of terminology is because we are doing a lot of research and science and using technology to advance the way that our food is produced and in a much more efficient and sustainable way. And we're really proud of using science and technology to solve those problems. And so that's why I think we sort of went with that nomenclature that is typical in the technology industry. I also think it's really important for people to realize that food is a technology. A lot of uh, consumers. Think about food in a very like artisanal way. And again, that more emotional way. Think about how wine or bread is produced right now, right? There's years of research that went into understanding how best to do those fermentations to create the best flavor and texture. And all of that was based on research. And so we're just doing that same type of research, but applying it to products that it hasn't been applied to before.
0: Right. I think if people knew how much work goes into designing like new Oreo flavors, <laughs> you know, their minds would be blown because it's, you know, you do have, you know, people that are analyzing not just the taste, but the way the textures of like the outside and the inside work together. And they're testing that, you know, with thousands of people, I assume, and they're trying to figure out, okay, what gets people the most excited? So yeah, I think it's, it's definitely accurate to think of it more as this very scientific thing rather than something that, you know, a chef is sitting in a kitchen and cooking up.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: One thing that's very interesting to me about the way, just the way you were talking about the Impossible Burgers, you very clearly said we're optimizing this around what meat eaters want from this experience, which is amazing to me because there are plenty of meat alternatives you can get in a supermarket today, right? And there, but a lot of them are designed for vegetarians, right? You see, but you know, your vegetarian friends are the ones that are going to go for those. How important is it for this product that you are designing it for meat eaters rather than you know, the already converted vegetarians.
1: I would say it's of the utmost importance. Our goal is to create a product for meat lovers that doesn't compromise on any of the things that they care about, right? So it's going to deliver on the same taste and texture and they can, you know, use it at the same sort of celebrations and barbecues that they already use meat at. But then it also doesn't compromise on its impact to the environment and makes it so that they still have a choice, you know, of choosing whatever they think is, is the most delicious and versatile, and healthy product, whether that's something from an animal or something like what the Impossible Burger provides. We've done these impossible challenges where we'll cook a a beef burger and cook the Impossible Burger. And it's really hard for people to tell the difference. And that's exactly the point. We want it to be something that meat lovers don't have to give up anything to switch to. They're going to love it just as much as they love animal-based products. And it's super different from all of the other plant-based and meat alternatives. Like you talked about, that have previously been on the market. This is like is of its own class, right? It's much more like an actual like raw protein product. And if you talk to a lot of the chefs that we work with now, that's how they consider it, right? They think about designing their menu and what are the proteins that they're going to use. And Impossible Burger, especially because it is this sort of raw product that can be turned into a variety of different dishes, they view it the same way that they view beef. And that's exactly how we want consumers to think about it too, is that if you love meat, this product is for you.
0: So I wanna talk about the design process. When people think about taste, they're not thinking about, you know, design in the same way you think about, you know, designing a website or designing, you know, anything else out in the world. In order to design this product, you have to have like a very deep understanding of just the way taste itself works, right? Um, And you use previously the word heme. What is heme and how does the understanding of heme influence the way that you're designing the taste and the experience of the Impossible Burger?
1: That's a great question. So, yeah, let's start talking about what heme is. Heme is an iron containing molecule that is found in nearly every living plant and animal and is essential for life. It's in our blood and helps carry oxygen in our blood. And it is a huge part of what makes meat taste like meat. And that was one of the essential discoveries that Impossible Foods made. So, you know, if you look at steak or pork or chicken you can eat, even just looking at it you see that there are different colors right and that's because they all have different levels um, of heme in the form of myoglobin and then when you sear a steak and it goes through all of the maillard chemistry which is what happens when you brown it and create all of that delicious flavor all of that is coming from the reactions that heme is undergoing. And you'll see it turn from that red to brown. And that's the exact same thing that's happening in the Impossible Burger because we are using the exact same molecules. We're using heme the same way that heme is found in animal products. The difference is that we're getting it from a much more efficient and sustainable source. Heme is actually found in really high concentrations in the root nodules of soy plants. And it's really interesting. If you dig up a soy plant, you can see the roots have these little nodules on them and you can cut them open and they're bright red with heme. The plant also needs heme to survive. We determined that the most efficient way to scale up uh, heme production was actually to take the genes that the soy plant uses to produce heme, put them into yeast and do a fermentation just like you would for beer or wine. And the yeast is able to really, really efficiently produce a lot of heme. And then we add that to our burger and allow nature to take its course then. So the same flavor chemistry that you get when you cook a hamburger from a cow is a chemistry that you get when you cook an Impossible Burger as well, because we're starting with those same precursors.
0: So once you've isolated the taste, where do do you go from there? Because obviously a big part of this is also combining that taste with the texture, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point. We are not just focusing on flavor, although we do understand that, you know, for the past 12 years, if you ask consumers, what's the most important driver for choosing their food? Flavor is always number one, followed by price and then health. But again, like you said, what we are trying to do is create that entire meat eating experience. People obviously love the taste of beef, but they also love the texture or the experience of actually cooking it and hearing it sizzle. So we take all of that into consideration when we are designing our products because we want to give meat eaters the full experience of of eating meat that they already love. We have amazing scientists here that work on understanding what are the best ingredients to give us the really good chew down and texture and to create the juiciness that people love, as well as making sure all of our ingredients are you know, sustainable and nutritious. And then we work with chefs to understand what is the, the culinary versatility of the product and how do the different ingredients change the way that the product is able to be cooked. We look at it from every single angle to give people the entire meat eating experience.
0: When do you incorporate the people into the process? Is it at the beginning? Is it once you have a formula you want to test out? How closely tie, you know, when when are you incorporating their sort of user feedback and user wants in the process?
1: So we do a variety of different types of consumer tests from preference tests uh, and then understanding just hedonics, which means just how much they like the product. And that is basically from the on start of product innovation. We are going to be doing regular and routine consumer tests with people all over the country so we can understand how the different demographics play into what it is that people like about a burger and then specifically our burger.
0: So when you're conducting these user tests, for the most part, you're hearing from people that they are really interested in, in the taste, the texture. Does the the experiential part of it come into this as well, like this idea that people also want the experience of being around the grill with friends cooking it? How important is like the societal, the cultural part of this when when you're talking to people?
1: That's a super interesting question. We've known as a society for a very long period of time that what we eat is extremely tied to our culture. We know that meat is already something that people love and they love it because it tastes so delicious, but also because you know it's a way that you can celebrate and bring friends together. Again, that entire cooking experience. And so we're not trying to change that, right? We know that this is a product that people will use. The only thing that we're trying to redesign is the way that it's made.
0: Right. So you already know what your destination is. You're just taking a different path to getting there.
1: Exactly. We're not redesigning the product or redesigning the process.
0: So take us through the process of how you're actually testing this with people. Do you do sort of blind tests where you have one group eating the Impossible Burger and another group eating a beef burger?
1: Yeah. Uh, so we do a variety of different types of consumer tests. When we're doing product development and understanding from like the research side how different changes are affecting the, the reaction that people have or the, how much they like the product, the most frequent test that we do is called a preference test. We'll have, you know, anywhere from 100 to 200 burger eaters. So people who have already been identified as people who love meat and specifically love burgers. And they'll be given two samples that they're completely blinded to. One will be beef and one will be impossible. If we're doing a comparison to beef, we'll also do like two different comparisons to versions of our product. If that's something that we want information on, they'll be forced to choose the one that they prefer. And then they also separately will then rate each individual sample on how much they liked it, how much they liked it overall, how much they liked the appearance, the flavor and the texture.
0: Burger King is going to be trialing Impossible Burgers in a few St. Louis locations. And there was a, there was an article, I think, in the Wall Street Journal. And he had someone that says, if I didn't know what I was eating, I would have no idea it was not beef. Is that like the thing that's like music to your ears? That makes you you jump out of your chair and get really excited because that seems to be exactly what you're going for.
1: Yeah, exactly. That is like, oh good, they get it. You know, um, it is really exciting to be launching at a place like Burger King, right? That has like thousands of locations all over the world and to be able to be accessible to that many people. We're targeting meat eaters, but you know, there's a variety of different types um, and qualities of meat that people eat. And we really want our product to be available to everyone, no matter where you are. We can go everywhere from a Michelin-starred restaurant to to fast food, and everyone can try it, is a huge part of our mission as well.
0: What's the biggest misconception about the work that you do and plant-based meat overall?
1: Hmm, I think there's two main ones. Because a lot of the previous plant based products haven't been that successful or tasted that great in terms of replacing meat, I think a huge misconception is that because we are also a plant based product, that it won't taste good. So there's this sort of like fear that it's going to be terrible. But one thing that we've seen time and time again is that tasting is believing. And once consumers actually try the product, it's that sort of reaction. It's like, whoa, like, no way is this plant-based like this. It tastes exactly like meat. So I think that's a really sort of fun experience to get to see when that light bulb goes off in someone's head and they no longer have that misconception that because it's plant-based, it can't taste good. The other misconception, I think, is that people sort of still think that this is for vegetarians. So if they're a meat eater, you know, why why would they eat this product? And so that's, you know, going to be a really interesting sort of part of our strategy to make sure that we are targeting the meat eaters because they are the ones that we need, you know, to really adopt this product so that we can reach that mission of, you know, removing animals from our food system.
0: I want to pull back a little bit and talk about where this work fits into the environmental mission and some of the larger societal things. One thing that I've no, I noticed, and this sort of sparked my interest in this topic was, I think it might have been last year or maybe the year before when White Castle started selling Impossible Burgers. And I went into White Castle because I was really interested in trying it out. And then I asked the person at the register if I could have one. And they said, and then she said, no, we don't have any more. And that blew my mind, right? My understanding was like, you know, no one's going to want to try this. Everyone's sort of been burned on these kind of things before. But that experience really taught me that there's actually an extreme demand both from that side of like people are just curious about trying out this new thing but i also do believe in conversations that i have with a lot of people and this is how i feel personally is that you know once we have a alternative to meat that tastes just as good and doesn't have like all these the you know the sacrifices that you have to make to be a vegetarian right now. Um, once those things are solved, I think it's going to be a flip of a switch when people will go and embrace this new thing. And I'm just curious if what your viewpoint on this is, because the idea that people are so excited about trying this out for me really shows that there's such a demand for this that once it's met, people are not going to need much convincing to actually try this out, and embrace it, and make it a part of their lives as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's totally right. I think that there's you know a few factors at play. I think Think one is that consumers love having choices, right? There and they want to be able to try a variety of different things. The same is true for chefs as well, right? We've just seen the response is just pure excitement to be able to work with a brand new ingredient that functions the same. It's like super interesting to people from that regard. The other thing that I think is going to allow people to switch is because, again, if you ask people, What it is that they love about meat or beef specifically, no one is saying, well, my favorite thing is because it came from killing an animal. (laughs) You know, I really do believe that this is gonna be one of those things in 50 years that, you know, later generations are gonna say, wait, I'm sorry, what? Like, we used to get meat from animals? That seems crazy. Like, just like we used to drive our own cars or, you know, everyone used to smoke cigarettes. I really do think that it's gonna be that much of a switch. Food technology process using animals to produce meat that hasn't been updated for 10,000 years, right? And it's super ripe for disruption. And there's no reason why we should not be innovating in this space and not be thinking about ways of producing meat more efficiently. And the fact that it comes from a dead animal is not something that people care about. They care about that it tastes delicious, that it functions the same way, and they can cook it in a variety of different ways, and that it's available and it provides all of that, the nutrients and the protein and everything that we need that's important for our diet. Those are the things that are important to consumers, and those are the things that they'll get when they switch to Impossible Burger.
0: I definitely agree with that. Final question for you that we ask everyone on the show, a big part of the conceit of usable is that designers across industries can learn a lot from each other, not in the specific nature of their work, but just at a high level, how you approach solving problems for the end user of your product. When thinking about your work and the process that you go through for designing Impossible Burger for food eaters, what can designers in other spaces learn from your approach?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot to learn um, in both directions, right? And I think one of the things I'm excited about is learning more about the design uh, industry and and how they approach it. And then hopefully we can share how we approach it more from, you know, a researcher scientific perspective. I recently just went to the Fortune Design Brainstorm Conference in Singapore, and it was really interesting to get to interface with a lot of people, a lot of designers who are in these different industries. And I think one of the, the biggest differences that I sort of notice in in talking to people goes back to this concept of sort of what we're designing and where we're using design in the process. So I think a lot of designers sort of look at, okay, what's the new product that I can make, but we're not doing that. We have a sort of our target product. We know the attributes that we want it to have. And that is, you know, we're modeling it after meat from animals. We're redesigning the process to get there. So that's sort of just a different way of framing the design problem that I think might be useful uh, in other industries as well, especially with regard to sustainability, because basically we don't have the time to change people's behavior and change their mind and make them stop eating meat. People are not going to stop eating meat. We know the product that we have to produce. We just have to make it in a much more efficient and sustainable way. And so that's the way that we've approached solving that problem at Impossible Foods.
0: Laura, thanks so much for speaking with us.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Usable is a Quartz Creative production. Ricardo Bilton and Morgan Chemoluski are our executive producers. Music by George Colosso. Art design by Shannon Angley. For more information about Quartz Creative, head to creative.qz.com.